When Henry Flagler, co-founder of Standard Oil and one of the world's most famous and powerful men, announced that he would extend his far-flung empire by building a railroad across the ocean, few could have anticipated how things would ultimately turn out. Many immediately dismissed Flagler's intentions as impossible. They were hard-headed scientists, engineers, and businessmen who thought what Flagler proposed to build a railroad 153 miles from Miami to Key West, much of it over open water, was a crackpot notion on the face of it. Flagler's folly, the press dubbed the project, though the man who proposed it was undeterred. He would press on. The story behind the very being of this railroad may be its most amazing aspect. It is a story that concerns one of the world's richest men, one of the most difficult engineering feats ever conceived, and the most powerful storm ever to strike American shores. In a sense, this railway is what remains of one of the last great gasps of the era of manifest destiny and an undertaking that marked the true closing of the American frontier. The building of the railroad across the ocean was a colossal piece of work, born of the same impulse that made individuals believe that pyramids could be raised, cathedrals erected, and continents tamed. The highway is a ghost, really, all that remains of an era where men still lived who believed that with enough will and energy and money that anything could be accomplished. That is an excerpt from the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Last Train to Paradise, Henry Flagler and the Spectacular Rise and Fall of the Railroad that Crossed an Ocean, and it was written by Les Staniford. Okay, before I jump back into the book, I just want to tell you how this fits into everything else that you and I have been talking about. I've had this book for a very long time. I haven't gotten around to reading it, and I think now is the perfect opportunity to do so because I'm rereading. The very next podcast I'm working on is I'm rereading the fantastic biography of John D. Rockefeller called Titan. I read it for all the way back on podcast number 16, but I didn't really know how to make a podcast back then, and that book is way too important. And so I figured before I reread that biography, let me go ahead and find a biography on Rockefeller's partner. And I'm glad I did because this book is absolutely incredible. And I should have known it was good because I had read one of Les's books in the past. In fact, one of my favorite books I've ever read for the podcast was all the way back on Founders number 73. It's called Meet You in Hell, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Clay Frick, and the Bitter Partnership that Transformed America. That was part of a three-part series I did on Andrew Carnegie and his partner, Henry Clay Frick. And that was my favorite book. It's an absolutely fantastic story. So what this book is about is exactly what that excerpt said. It's about one of the world's richest men at the time, so that's Henry Flagler, one of the most difficult difficult engineering feats, which is the second career that he does after Standard Oil. He, he, come, he becomes a developer and builds essentially like most of the state of Florida, and then the most powerful hurricane to ever strike the American shores. So I'm going to focus mainly on Henry Flagler and the work he's doing, but it's an absolute fantastic book. So if you like the podcast, make sure you pick up the book. So at the very beginning, the author is doing the drive from Miami down to Key West. I've done this drive myself about probably at least 10 times in my life. And so this is fantastic because it gives you an idea of how insane Flagler's undertaking was. And so this is two people talking in modern day because you can still see some of the remnants of the, the railway. It's going to wind up being destroyed by a hurricane in 1935. This is many years after Flagler uh, died, though. So it says, much of the original railroad bridge was left standing. Some of it now serves as a fishing pier. Massive stretches jutting out from the water, pilings, and arches, which are as mystifying to the modern traveler as Stonehenge. And so now you have a conversation between two people. 
So it says, what's that over there anyway? That's an old railroad bridge. Railroad? Yeah. Across the ocean? That's what it is. Who would build a railroad across the ocean? Now that's another story. And that is where I want to start because the author does an incredible job describing who exactly Henry Flagler was. He was an incredible, formidable individual. Let's jump right into it. In early 1904, when Henry Flagler made his fateful decision to begin the building of the Overseas Railroad, he was already 74. The drive to make money had little to do with his decisions in those days, even if money or the lack of it had been the central force in the first part of his life. And this is absolutely incredible. A million ideas came to my mind when I got to this section. So it says, Flagler had grown up poor, the son of a minister. Henry was only 14 when the family's Spartan existence prompted him to leave home in 1844 and join his half-brother Dan in northern Ohio. And he does this because he's going to want to be a salesman in a general store uh, that his uncle owns. And it says, Flagler, who arrived with a few pennies in his pocket, was determined to make the most of his opportunity working long hours to save his money, and often refusing invitations to join friends on weekend getaways. His hard-working, sober-sided ways would persist through much of his life, earning him the trust of employers and later of influential investors and partners who would change his life beyond his dreams. So that's the first thing that pops to mind. This is the importance of not only being industrious and hardworking, but also appearing industrious and hardworking intentionally. That is a very, very old idea. When I got to that section, the, very, the person that popped to my mind was the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. I covered this all the way back on Founders number 62. And in his autobiography, Ben talks about this. He was obviously one of the greatest marketers to ever live as well. And he's, this is Ben writing, uh, this is Benjamin Franklin writing in his autobiography. He says, I took care not only to be in reality industrious and frugal, but to avoid all appearances to the contrary. I dressed plainly. I was seen at no places of idle diversion. And to show that I was not above my business, I sometimes bought home the paper I purchased at the stores through the streets in a wheelbarrow. So I'm going to switch to, that is Franklin's autobiography. Now let's go to Isaacson's, Walter Isaacson's biography of Benjamin Franklin. This is, I think, founders number 115. And he's going to describe why is Franklin doing this. Or he's going to elaborate on why Franklin is doing this. Franklin became an apostle of being, and just as important, of appearing to be industrious. Even after he became successful, he made a show of personally carting the rolls of paper he bought in a wheelbarrow down the street to his shop rather than having a hired hand do it. And this is what Franklin said about it. The industry visible to our neighbors began to give us character and credit. So he's saying, that's an interesting way to say, hey, I'm working hard and other people are noticing that I'm working hard. And that opens up opportunities for you. And so he says one of the town's most prominent merchants uh, said of Franklin, the industry of that Franklin is superior to anything I ever saw of the kind. I see him still at work when I go home from the club and he is at work again before his neighbors are out of bed. And so at that point in Franklin's life, when he's still coming up as an entrepreneur, all the, the, the people that are older, more successful, they have more money, they open up all these opportunities because they see, oh, Franklin is one of us. That's exactly what happens to Flagler. And part of his the fact that he was always about his business, always focused on, on the task at hand, is what is going to have him link up with John D. Rockefeller later on. And obviously the, the creation of Standard Oil changes his life forever. And it's the reason that we know his name to this day and that I'm holding this book about his life in my hand. 
So let's continue. Not only is he working hard, he studies intentionally. Check this out. Part of the ambitious young Flagler's duties came to involve the brokering of corn to shipping agents in nearby Cleveland. Though he knew nothing of the grain business at the outset, he threw himself into its study with his characteristic devotion to the job at hand. His single-minded approach was so successful that he was able to buy into the Harkness, that's his half-brother's family, into the Harkness family business within a few years, and shortly afterward made the acquaintance of one of his, of one of his Cleveland counterparts in the grain brokerage business. That person's name was John D. Rockefeller. Got to pause there. That part is so important. Didn't he? Though, let's go back to that. Though he knew nothing of the grain business at the outset, he threw himself into its study with its characteristic, with his characteristic devotion to the job at hand. When I got to that section, this paragraph that I read a long time ago, written by David Ogilvie in the book Ogilvie on Advertising, that's Founders Number Eighty Two. It's the good ones, no more. He just gives us great advice for life. You can be the best informed. You, can, you don't have to be the smartest. You can just collect, simply collect more information than other people. That is a, a completely achievable task. So let's go to what Ogilvy recommended. At this point, he's writing. He's super successful. He's already built this gigantic advertising empire, and he's giving advice to younger people on the way up. And this is what Ogilvy said. Set yourself to becoming the best informed person in the agency on the account to which you are assigned. If, for example, it is a gasoline account, Read books on oil geology and the production and the production of petroleum products. Read the trade journals in the field. Spend Saturday mornings at gas stations talking to motorists. Visit your clients' refineries and research laboratories. At the end of your first year, you will know more about the oil business than your boss. And so a combination of those ideas is what produces Henry Flagler's first fortune. Remember, he arrived in town with pennies in his pocket. All you have is energy and enthusiasm. And so he's going to also be in a uh, right place at the right time. This is going to be the beginning of the Civil War. And it says the onset of the Civil War proved to be a boon to Flagler. Why is that? He's a grain merchant, right? He's in the merchandising of corn. A grain merchant began, uh, Flagler, a grain merchant, began to realize the truth of the maxim that an army travels on its stomach. Business boomed and Flagler was soon rich by his own standards. Rich but bored. He had $50,000 in his bank account, and it was 19, excuse me, 1862. And this is where he makes his first catastrophic mistake as a young man. He's just going to repeat. History doesn't repeat. Human nature does. This happened back then. It's happening today. It will happen in the future, and is the dangers of margin. I love the way that Warren Buffett writes about this in his shareholder letters. And he says, over the years, a number of very smart people have learned the hard way that a long string of impressive numbers multiplied by a single zero always equals zero. That is not an equation whose effects I would like to experience personally. That is exactly what Flagler is about to feel right here. Casting about for something more interesting to do, Flagler had hit upon the idea of salt. Intrigued by a discovery of vast deposits of salt in nearby Michigan and an act on that state's legislature that made the business tax exempt, Flagler sank every penny he had into the venture along with an equal amount that he borrowed. But the great salt rush had drawn a horde of competitors, some of who actually knew a few things about the business, unlike Flagler, right? When the end of the Civil War brought a collapse in prices, Flagler's operation fell apart. He found himself not only penniless, but now $50,000 in debt. It was a lesson the ambitious young man would never forget. But he also does something smart here. He does not compound one bad mistake with another. Okay, 
shouldn't have done that. Now I, I, I'll know that for the future. And what does he do? Fla- Flagler was resolute. He might have been beaten, but he would not move backwards. So now he's negative uh, 50000 in his bank account. He's got to borrow a few hundred dollars to try to get back on his feet. With a few hundred dollars in his pocket, borrowed, uh, advanced to him, excuse me, by his father-in-law, he moved in with Mary, his wife of 11 years, to Cleveland, and he goes back to Cleveland, to Cleveland and renewed his old acquaintances in the grain-dealing world, right? So that's where he made all his money. He's like, oh, I'm bored. I'm going to jump into some other business I don't know that well. And then that obviously didn't work out well, so he goes back. Why is that important? Because he takes a post in a firm that had just been vacated by his old friend Rockefeller, who had just left grain for an intriguing new substance called oil. And so Rockefeller and Flagler are going to find themselves at the right place at the right time with the right set of skills because of its position on Lake Erie and its proximity to the newly discovered oil fields in western Pennsylvania, Cleveland, where they are, had developed over the past dozen or so years into a shipping and refining center for oil, which at the time was still competing with whale oil and lard for supremacy as a fuel and lubricant. And so that is where Rockefeller is going to set up his business. This is the business that Flagler is eventually going to be, uh, be invited into. Rockefeller had invested in a refining business during the Civil War, and by the time of Flagler's arrival in Cleveland, he had decided to devote all of his energies to the business of making and shipping oil. Rockefeller did not believe in diversification. He said they had no outside interest, that it's an immense task building a successful company. It's silly to go out and diversify into other lines or to make other investments. Focus on your business. If Rockefeller, later in his life, he had ton of ton of other investments, right? But if he never had a single investment other than his own company, he still would have been one of the richest people alive. What does that tell you? Back to the book. Because Flagler had rented a house on the same street as Rockefeller and kept his offices in the same building, the two often walked to and from work together, comparing notes and sharing their chief binding passion, the desire to make large sums of money around this time. Rockefeller is going to be about 25, and I think think Flagler is either 32 or 34. I can't remember if he's, he's, he's about seven or nine years older than Rockefeller. But when I got to that part, I, was, I, I read Rockefeller's autobiography too a while back. I think it's like Founders 155 or something like that. But the reason that, I, that, that came to mind when I was reading this section is because when Ro- Rockefeller wrote that autobiography, when he's a very old man, well after Flagler died, and he's writing his, in, well, as he's writing the autobiography, he says that this right here, walking back and forth, working every day with Flagler, he says this was some of the best times of his life. And so when I got to that section, I left a note to myself, reminder, you are in the prime of your life now. Do not take this for granted. The old ver- older version of you is going to look back on what you are experiencing right now fondly, which means that you must go after what you want in, in life like your life depends on it. Why? Because it does. I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back at this precious time and be like, wow, you played it safe. And now I'm about to go to my grave, never achieving what I want, wanted in life. That is why I think autobiographies especially are, are such gifts to humanity because you see they're just further down the path than you, are, you and I are, usually by a few decades. It's, it's foolish to think all these smart and formidable people, like we're going to avoid their fates. They're not writing about how great it is to be 75. They're writing about, man, I wish I could go back in time in my 20s, my 30s, and my 40s as I was building this business. And so I try to wake up every day with gratitude. It's like I'm in it right now. The older version of me, the happiness, I should say, of the older version of me depends on my decisions and what I do right now. So that's exactly where we are in the story. Rockefeller was convinced 
Oh, this is so. This is part two, and I'll tell you what I was thinking about when I got to this section of the book too. Rockefeller was convinced that oil was the conduit to a, to success, and had joined forces with a chemist by the name of Andrews, who possessed technical expertise upon which the refining process was founded. So this again, what Rockefeller does is really smart. That you need to find partners that have skills that you lack. If both of you are doing the same thing, one of you isn't necessary, right? Rockefeller himself was the consummate manager, but he was well aware of his own short shortcomings as a marketer, and that is where Flagler came in. So he's like, I'm not technical and I'm not a marketer, so let me go find people that are, right? Flagler was one of the most successful grain brokers Rockefeller had known before the war. So that goes back to where this section started, the importance of him, of Flagler being hardworking, single-minded, learning as much as he could, and not only being industrious, but appearing to be industrious because now Rockefeller's remember that's like hey I need help I'm about to he doesn't know this yet but he's about to build maybe the most profitable company that ever existed who could who do I know that can help me imagine the difference in Flagler's life if he had had messed up that opportunity when he was a young man if he was lazy if he was drinking all the time if he wasn't studying if he's just basically you know an average human being that opportunity that Rockefeller is going to going to offer him let's say five years into the future thereabouts that would have been foreclosed that is why it's so important. It's so crazy how these things connect together. So Rockefeller is going to recruit him and really think about Standard Oil. I know we, it's funny from like our perspective, you know, what is this, 120 years later, something like that, maybe even more, 150. Uh, I try not to do public math. Uh, but it's really funny from our perspective, like they're building the most valuable technology company of the day of their day. That's exactly what they're doing. Rockefeller valued Flagler's undying optimism and drive as well as his relative maturity, which would come in handy for a fledgling business founded upon a new technology and seeking to attract investment from others. And so it says, for the next 15 years, Flagler and Rockefeller worked side by side, walking to the office together in the mornings, passing drafts of letters and detailed business documents between their desks during the day, and walking home together at night always planning and calculating yeah that's that's an understatement these are some of the these are two of the most calculated humans i've ever read about the result of their efforts was standard oil the largest most powerful most profitable and perhaps most notorious corporation ever created rockefeller would come to freely attribute the secret of their firm's success to his partner for they were not long in the business before flagler realized that the negotiation of a lower freight rate was the key to the entire matter. So there's a lot to admire about Flagler that we're going to get to in the book. But one thing you have to know about him up front, you would not want to deal with him. He was absolutely, completely ruthless, business and personal-wise. And I want to read about people like that. I want to constantly remind her these people are walking the earth today. We have to have defense against them. So this is, uh, they're like, okay, well, we figure, okay, the low freight rate, so the actual transportation of their product, right, was the key to the entire matter. What does that mean? If oil could be brought to their refineries at a rate below that offered to competitors, it would create an unassailable competitive advantage. In the highly competitive oil market, no other factor in the process could differentiate one player from the next to such a degree. And that's why you see over and over again throughout history, Sam Walton, Andrew Carnegie, Jeff Bezos, they all say, gentlemen, Watch your costs. That's a, a direct quote from Carnegie. He was obsessed, and his partner Henry Kelly Frick. Watch your costs. Watch your co actually, it might be Frick's quote. I can't remember. Carnegie, or one of them, said it. But they said, "Gentlemen, watch your costs." That's what they would tell up and down their entire business. We will have an unassailable competitive advantage if we can produce, in their case, steel. Uh, at a cheaper rate than anybody else. Rockefeller does a uh, similar thing. At a, as a result, Flagler soon became a master at the negotiation of rebates from the major rail, rail carriers who served the oil fields. And so the author does a fantastic job here. This is just really in like two or three sentences. This is a basic, very basic description of their future moat. 
And so just in case you don't already know, that's a term from Warren Buffett. This is how he defines it. When our long-term competitive position improves as a result of our almost unnoticeable actions, we describe the phenomenon as widening the moat. And in doing that is essential if we are to have the kind of business we want a decade or two from now. When short-term and long-term conflict, widening the moat must take precedence. So this is just a fancy way of saying, why are you difficult to compete with? That is your moat. That is the way I think about it, at least. So let's go back to this. He's like, okay... He, Flagler's uh, negotiating with all the major rail carriers who serve the oil fields. And it says, in return for lower rates, Flagler would guarantee massive shipments to the railroad. So I'm giving you something in return. To meet these goals, Flagler would in turn have to acquire more crude and increase his refining capacity. In order to make that happen, he and Rockefeller would need money and a lot of it. So that is when they incorporate Standard Oil. They raise, uh, it says Standard Oil went public in January of 1870 at a capitalization of $1 million. It was divided into 10,000 shares. Rockefeller took about 26% of the shares and Flagler had about half that. Why is that important? Inside a dozen years, the worth of that company would grow to $82 million. You're talking about the 1882. That is insane. $82 million. A staggering rate of increase and one fueled largely by Flagler's remorseless goal to control completely the production of refined oil in Cleveland. And so they keep widening the moat. We're going to get to this thing called the Cleveland Massacre. This is just one paragraph. I'll talk more about this next week on uh, in Rockefeller's biography. But it says, Flagler was a ferocious tactician at the office. Within a few months, he and Rockefeller had either bought out or scared off 20 of their 25 competitors. The choice offered to their competitors was simple. Except what, we always, what, what they always assisted insisted rather was a fair price for your company or go broke trying to compete with a powerhouse that's uh, standard oil obviously with a powerhouse that could do business more cheaply and so again that's why they're obsessed with low cost they can make money at a, at a lower price than their competitors they are willing to drive down that price to make you go bankrupt low cost can bankrupt your competitors and rockefeller and flagler are both ruthless enough to make sure that that happens and there's a great story in Titan where Rockefeller is told from the story of uh, one of their competitors where Rockefeller shows them, shows the guy he's trying to buy out that was competing with Rockefeller and Flagler at the time, shows him his books, shows him the, their cost structure. And I forgot exactly what the guy said, but essentially he's like, oh, no, like these guys can make money at a, at a prices that will bankrupt me. I have no choice but to sell to them. And so once they consolidated on the refinery aspect, they said, okay, how can we control oil prices? Now, you have to remember, when we're dealing with people like Rockefeller, Flagler, J.P. Morgan, Vanderbilt, they did not look at competition as something like in a similar vein that like we might look of today. Like Most people think, oh, if businesses are competing. That's usually good. Direct competition between uh, businesses is usually good for the end consumer, right? They thought of competition as like something to get rid of. And one of the funniest descriptions of like their mindset that's, that's very different, than I think, from most people's is like when J.P. Morgan was advising clients about they were having problems um, with, I, I might have been Moet and Hennessy. I can't remember that they were, they were manufacturing champagne. And so J.P. Morgan's like, well, have you thought about just buying up the whole champagne region? Not buying up your competitor, literally buying up the entire industry. And he said that's just because the, then you can just control prices. So it just gives you an insight into how these people thought. Flagler, Flagler, so now they're about to like, okay, let's, we're going to control uh, the price of oil. Flagler's tactics were not limited to his fellow refineries or refiners. In 1872, he took advantage of a fall in oil prices to persuade most of the Pennsylvania oil producers to join with him in a scheme directed at the entire railway industry. In what may sound familiar to those accustomed to today's OPEC shenanigans, Flagler proposed an industry-wide agreement to limit oil production, thereby guarding against price fluctuations 
and also forcing rate concessions from railway carriers who would have to play ball or be frozen out. So that is part one of his idea. But part two is where the leverage actually comes to be able to do this idea. What is stopping the railway saying, no, you're going to pay the prices because you have no way to get your oil out? Standard Oil, because they'd been making so much money because they had knocked out all their refinery competitors, right? Standard Oil could afford to construct its own transportation systems, including a newly developed network of pipelines. So the railway had a choice. Transport our product at the lowered price that we're all going to agree on, or we're just going to run it through our own network, and we're just going to use pipelines instead. By 1877, the company had become a behemoth that had far outgrown its Cleveland roots. Rockefeller and Flagler determined to move their operations to New York, to, to the burgeoning city of New York. Flagler was not keen even when he lived in New York. His kind of his schedule didn't really change uh, much. He kept the same schedule that he did when he was in Cleveland. He did not he was not keen to join the the New York City's social swirl. Even in Cleveland, he had virtually no social life. His wife had been plagued by a lifetime of uh, chronic bronchitis, and when Flagler was not at his office, he was with her. Her condition continued to worsen, and in May of 1881, she died. Her death was a stunning blow to Flagler. And I'm almost done giving this brief overview about because I want to get to his second career, which is what the main mainly the book is about. And so at this point, he's like, I'm really rich. My wife died. He's going to get remarried, and he's looking for his next adventure. Flagler was a wealthy man. His net worth was nearly $20 million and climbing with every barrel of crude oil that the vast standard oil uh, company pumped out of the ground. He had made it beyond his wildest expectations. This poor, puritanical boy from the sticks, and it seemed he was ready to enjoy the fruits of his labor at last. Wrong. Somebody like Flagler is incapable of just sitting down on a beach. He's a builder at his heart, at his core. So the reason they're saying, oh, he's going to enjoy himself, he's got to remarried, he's really rich... He's spending a lot of time in Florida, which is completely undeveloped at the time. And so he's like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just uh, start developing real estate. I like hotels. Why don't I build one? And he liked hanging out in St. Augustine so much, he decided, okay, this is where I'm going to build a hotel. So in short order, he had brought up a large section of unproductive orange groves and hired himself an architect and embarked upon building a lavish Mediterranean-themed hotel called the Ponce de Leon in St. Augustine. And so this confused everybody. It's like, why is the standard oil guy building... He's like, you make a ton of money on oil. You're not going to make nearly as much on on hotels. And I just love his answers. Like, I do it because I want to. No degree of success in hotel management could ever provide an income rivaling what he had com- what he had from oil. Flagler was asked to explain why on earth a man with a major interest in the most powerful company on earth would want to get into the hotel business. Flagler responded by telling a story that he'd grow fond of. That of the elderly church deacon asked to explain a sudden, unaccountable bout of drunkenness. The deacon explained to his pastor that he had spent all his days before in the Lord's service, Flagler said, and now he was finally taking one for himself. And so Flagler is about to say, I'm doing the same thing. For the last 14 or 15 years, I've devoted myself exclusively to my business, and now I am pleasing myself. So essentially, I'm doing it because I want to. He says, I want something to last for all time to come. I would hate to think that I'm investing money that will not bring a return in the future, but how I will, however, have a hotel that suits me in every respect and one that I can thoroughly enjoy, cost what it may. And so why am I bringing this up? Because it's the very first step in developing Florida that is going to lead him eventually say, hey, I'll just run a, I, I built a hotel in St. Augustine. I need to bring people from the north, so I got to build my own railway. And then he's like, oh, well, I'll just keep going down. So he's going to run rail lines all the way down the state of Florida to the very tip when he gets to Key West, which is what the book is about. 
And even at an advanced age, he's almost 70 uh, years old at the time, he was still very hands-on. It took nearly a year and a half to to build the 540-room hotel, a process that Flagler himself oversaw down to the opening of crated furniture alongside his crew. So once he completes the hotel, he's like, wow, I enjoyed that. I want to do more of this. So he says he had learned something from the building of the Ponce de Leon. He had become a creator instead of an accumulator, and he had found much more satisfaction in such an accomplishment. And so he makes the point later. It's like, yeah, we're, we're taking oil from the ground. Uh, it's very useful. You know, people have energy needs, but we're, we're taking it out of the ground and we're shipping it and it goes all over the world. But a hotel, like I can see, I can touch, I can feel, I can actually experience it myself. But it's during the construction of the hotel that his wife, his second wife, goes crazy. She starts to believe spirits are talking to her. She starts to believe that her purpose in life, I guess, is to be the lover of the Tsar of Russia. She's obsessed with like, the, uh, the Ouija board and talking to spirits. Uh, she winds up getting committed. Then she comes out. And I need to bring this part up because what he's going to do soon is, is just really ruthless. So it says, uh, it was not long before uh, Ida Alice, so that's his wife, was again begging for her, her Ouija board. This is after she got out of the mental institute the first time. And friends were advising Flagler to have her committed once more. Flagler stood firm. He's like, no, she's not going to. But he had to change his mind because Ida Alice attacked her doctor with a pair of kitchen shears. The matter was then decided. Ida Alice was removed to a private asylum. Flagler would never see her again. And so remember that part. I'm going to circle around back to that part. Just keep that in your mind. I love this idea, though. This is actually the, one, of the, one of the most exciting parts about reading all these biographies. You see, like, the same idea, something like an insight they learned previously. And then you see, like, that idea or that premise behind that idea applied to a different industry. So it says, hardly had he embarked upon a career in hotel building than he realized that transporting customers to his hotels was as important a link in the process as moving crude oil to his refineries had been so many years before. All that experience in railroading was about to be put to use in an entirely different context as he tried to make sense of one of the most chaotic rail systems in the United States. So the existing lines that he found in Florida made no sense. So, of course, Flagler being the kind of person he is, like, I gotta fi- I'm going to fix this. I'll just do it myself. The lines that did exist had been built without regulation and with no regard for consistency of track. It was a situation that a man who had worked with peerless organizer John D. Rockefeller could scarcely comprehend. So at first, he tries to work with them to try to make a uniform. And he's like, oh, these guys just don't get it. I'm just going to buy you out. When talks with existing line owners proved fruitless, Flagler did what anyone with resources might. He ponied up half a million dollars and bought the railroad. And then as soon as he owns a railroad, he starts expanding. And this is where we get like, why would somebody try to build a railroad over the ocean? The only way to get to the keys at this point. And this is, uh, I talked about this a little bit about the Ernest Hemingway podcast I did. Because this this book that I held my hand actually starts out with the from the perspective of Ernest Hemingway. Because he's in the keys in 1935. And he's discovering all these dead bodies, these people that were sent down by the U.S. government to do construction in the keys. There was no advanced warning system. People, like, just hurricanes just happen. Like, you'd see a drop in the pressure, and then it'd be unpredictable. Like, 12 hours later, you know, you're, you're being pounded to death. People are drowning, everything like that. But before Flagler came about, the only way to get to the Keys was by boat. There was no bridge. There was no uh, railroad. And he's going to change all that. And so this is kind of a precursor to the mentality he has. This is years before he's going to get to the Keys. So he's still, he's still up in, like, central to northern Florida, and he says... Uh, His first decision was to build a bridge across the St. John's River. The moment that the company's engineers heard of Flagler's plans, they came forward quickly, announcing that no one had ever sunk railroad support piers in 90 feet of water. 
the depth that they would have to cross. And so they're telling him, no, no, this is impossible. And his point is, is well, how different is it to build a, a pier than a bridge? I just want a bridge to put my railroad on. And so it says, Flagler pondered this information for a moment, then turned back to the engineers. Can you not build a pier in 90 feet of water? After a brief huddle, the engineers said, yeah, we can. Then build it. And so I bring that to your attention because there's going to be multiple paragraphs, multiple conversations in the book where Flagler's constantly telling no. He just pauses, tries to break down things into like the smallest units, attacks them one at one. He's like, just combine those units together and you can do it. And I'll get to that more about that when we get to the keys. So now he starts like starting St. Augustine. He's like, all right, I'll just keep moving down. And so he's actually discovers Palm Beach, which is like this super wealthy enclave in present day. And it says he took to riding his own railroad, railroad incognito the better to scout out likely targets for acquisition with a route without arousing the attention of local speculators certain to jack their prices sky high. Should it be known that the great Henry Flagler might be interested? So that's another thing that he does over and over again. He's always disguising his true intentions. What is he searching up and down? Like what's his primary goal? Like why is he going further South? He wants to build more hotels. And once he gets to Palm beach, he's like, Oh, I'll just stop here. He loved it so much. He thought it was paradise on earth. He's like, actually winds up building uh, his giant home there, and to this day, uh, like you can go to West Palm Beach, or excuse me, Palm Beach, and there's a Flagler Museum at, all over South Florida. Uh, there's Flagler Museums. His street, uh, he's got ta- like little towns made after him, are named after him, buildings, streets. So he's considered, uh, along with Julia Tuttle, like the founder of Miami, which we'll get to in a minute. In 1982, he had visited Palm Beach in such a manner, and had returned to St. Augustine in a lather. And this is what he said, I had found a veritable paradise. And so that's eventually where he's going to move his, his operations. And so he's going to run this playbook. He, go, he scouts out places, hides his intention, buys land, builds a hotel. Once the hotel's there, then he just keeps moving that line down uh, further down south. Hardly had he completed his line to Palm Beach than, than people living in Miami, which is not called Miami at the time, I'll get there, were begging him to extend the rails southward to Miami, even though there was no such thing as Miami at that time. And so now we get to the chapter called The City That Flagler Built, and this is all about Miami. This is remarkable. In the, 19, in the 1890s, all that existed where the modern metropolis of Miami sprawls today was a muddy settlement of fewer than 500 souls. The place was called Fort Dallas at the time. Those who moved to Fort Dallas to seek their fortunes were interested in encourage others to join them. Among the most active of those pioneers was a woman from Cleveland named Julia Tuttle. So she is important. She's considered one of the founders of Miami as well. If you have ever flown into Miami and driven from Miami International Airport to Miami Beach, which is where most people come when they visit. I happen to live in Miami. I've lived in Miami a long time. The path you most likely took from the airport to get to the beach, you go over a causeway. It's called the Julia Tuttle Causeway. And so she was also a remarkable person in her own, own right. She was intending from the outset to carve a city from the wilderness. There was nothing here but 500 people. Uh, she went to work remodeling one of the original settlement structures into a home for herself and her two children. That's insane <laughs> that she brought her children there. Mindful of what it would take to turn their sleepy settlement into a city, she approached Flagler's rival, Henry Plant. So at the same time that Flagler is building all these hotels and rail lines on the east coast of Florida, there's this guy, Plant, that's doing so on the west coast. And so she's like, hey, why don't you extend your railroad from Tampa across the Everglades to Fort Dallas? Remember, Fort Dallas is what Miami is called at the time. Flagler's actually going to rename it Miami. And so you can think about Julia Tuttle's intentions. Like, we need, it's simple, like, we need a way to get people to the new city they were building. Really, it's a metaphor for creating a new product. 
But this plant guy is completely different from Flagler. He's like, it's impossible to build, because oh, you have to go through the Everglades. It's essentially just swampland. It's disgusting over there, actually. Um, that you, like, he just dismissed the, the idea that it was impossible to build a railroad across such territory now and forever. And then this is where you just have to admire Tuttle, because she's relentlessly persistent. Tuttle, undaunted, turned to the other great railroad builder in Florida, offering Henry Flagler half of her land if he, if he would only bring his railroad southward to Miami along the East Coast route. When Tuttle began her campaign, Flagler was also not interested. And the reason he wasn't interested is because he said, Flagler saw no immediate reason to press his road beyond Palm Beach, not when the quote-unquote city uh, was little more than a squatter's outpost. So that is a description of what Miami was when Julia Tuttle approached Henry Flagler. But things change fast. Flagler is, one, he likes to keep his options open, and two, he reacts to new information. And then fortune intervened. In the winter of 1894, one of the worst freezes in Florida history swept across the state, wiping out crops and citrus groves all the way to Palm Beach. The suffering that Flagler saw among farmers, growers, and laborers stunned him. He sent one of his employees out on a private relief mission with $100,000 in cash, instructing him to disperse it all. And so Julia Tuttle sees an opportunity here. Flagler was mindful of the news that was sent to him by the indefatigable Julia Tuttle that Fort Dallas had not been touched by the freeze. And so that's where Flagler sees an opportunity. He is 66 years old this time. And even at 66 years old, 66 years old, Flagler moves fast. How many times have you and I discussed the importance of speed when talking about the history of entrepreneurship? It is insane that they all just move rapidly. The decision did not take long. Inside, uh, three days later, that's how fast he goes. Fla- and then check out how <laughs> check out how crazy it was just to get from West Palm Beach at this point in history down to Miami. This is insane. And he's 66. Flagler had made plans for what was then an arduous trip. He'd take rail to West Palm Beach, then launch into a boat in Fort Lauderdale, and then more than thir- then travel the more than 30 miles from Fort Lauderdale to Miami by horse and carriage. This is when he finally agrees, I'm going to extend my rail south. He's going to build this gigantic hotel right on Biscayne Bay. And so the, the, the city, and I'm putting cities in quotation marks, they try to reward him by naming it after him. He's like, no, no, no. And I didn't know this. This was fascinating. Within three months, the city had been incorporated as Miami. Flagler had, had to gently urge the new town council to choose the original Native American name for, this, for the new city over his own name. So Flagler is actually the one that chose to name it instead of Flagler, Miami. And so he builds this fantastic hotel. It's completely out of, it doesn't make sense in its surroundings, which is essentially like just a, a swamp at this point. And we see his formula. I already mentioned this earlier, but I'm going to read it to you. The hotel is called the Royal Palm. The Royal Palm was not only an impressive feature of the new city, but virtually the very reason for Miami's being. Flagler was not dismayed at this, of course. For over the past dozen years, he had seen development thrive in the wake of his method. So this is his formula. Build a railroad to a place erect a destination-worthy resort hotel there, and other development was sure to follow. And so he felt comfortable. He's like this. I'll put the money up. I know people. Essentially, like, I, if you build it, they will come is what he's thinking about. But then it says, but even Flagler could not have predicted the events that would cause Miami's growth to explode in exponential terms. And part of that explosion is going to be caused by the Spanish-American War. So he had no intention. He was going to stay in Miami. And then he got the idea to go all the way down to the Keys, which crazy this time, just blew my mind, that the Key, the Key West, remember, you can only get there by boat, is still the largest city in Florida at the time. I think it's like 2,000 people, 20,000 people. I can't remember exactly. We'll get there, so we'll figure it out. But this is what caused, like, why would, a, why would he think that a railway 
that he has to construct over an ocean is actually going to be valuable. So it says, um, the, the, the ending of the Spanish-American War reawakened his interest in the matter. In the treaty that concluded the war, Spain agreed to give up its authority over Cuba, virtually assuring that the United States' interests would prevail in Cuba. And so the first idea is, like, well, you're going to have all these goods traveling from the Caribbean, Central and South America. The, the, the place that it makes sense to land is in this bustling little town of Key West. But we can't get the goods out. We, have, we, can, have deep, we can dredge deep water ports. And then what we'll do is we'll just run a, rail, a rail, railroad up and connect it to the mainland. And so this is 1898. He's around 60. It says he's 68 years old at this point. The, the railway is not going to be finished for quite a, a bit of time. But I want to just I'm going to read this section to you because I really think it helps you understand like who this person is. Right. And I, I, I admire this. He was even though he was 68 years old. Uh, and while his investments in Florida had not prospered to the degree that those in oil business had, he was still one of the most wealthy and influential men in the United States. Despite his familiar jest, and he, he would say over and over again at this point, that I would have been a rich man if it hadn't been for Florida. That part is technically true. He's still obviously rich. I think he leaves behind. It's insane how, how wealthy he was. Um, I think he leaves behind like $100 million. And that's in like early $1900. So I think multiple billions, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he winds up dumping 30 to $40 million in the development of Florida and he never turned a profit on it. So that he says that in jest, but it's accurate. He's like, I would have been a rich man if I had, if it hadn't been for Florida, he could have chosen at that moment to retire and live out his years in luxury, basking all the while in the gratitude of an entire state citizenry. So he's been developed, like he developed an entire railway down the East coast of Florida. He's developed all these resorts. He's promoting it. A lot of people are moving there. That's what they're talking about. But Flagler's not, he's not going to let the foot off his foot off the gas until he dies. And so I know I left myself here is the only exit strategy is death. But Flagler was not about to quit, not when he had come so close to the accomplishment of a goal that only a decade before had been dismissed as an utter fancy. Even in his late 60s, he was still a vigorous and powerful man. He had great wealth and technical expertise at his disposal, and laid before him was an engineering task that had galvanized the minds of every professional in the field, even as its magnitude sobered the more practical-minded. So this is the idea of I'm going to... Just this line I started all the way in northern Florida, that's going to run right over the ocean into the Keys. And if you've ever done that drive before, the author, so me and him might have a little bit of disagreement. I can understand why he thinks it's a beautiful drive. He, said, he thinks it's one of the best drives in the United States. Maybe I'm jaded because I've done it so many times. There are some cool cool parts of it, like the, the Seven Mile Bridge, which at the time was constructed. I'm pretty sure it was the lar largest, uh, longest bridge over open water in, in the world. And, you know, you are literally driving on like a four-lane bridge, if I'm not mistaken, directly in the ocean. It is kind of beautiful, but it's very flat. And the keys are just, in general, just a very strange, like, it's got a, like a pirate uh, history. And you still see that. Even Key West, it's very small. It, it, but, it, like, I've, I've tried to have a good time in the keys. I just, I'm incapable because I don't really drink and I don't fish. And everybody there is drunk all the time. And so the thing I just happen to enjoy the most, the best thing I've ever done is I rented like a, a tandem bike and me and my daughter, like my daughter love this because like we just, Key West, I think it's like two by four miles. Like it's real small. And we just biked over the entire city. So that was fun. But if you don't really drink and if you don't fish, there's just not much to do. So anyways, back to this. They're saying, hey, like you're, you're taking on a task. Like it's galvanizing the people that are super ambitious, but like the sober minded and practical people are like, yo, you're a little crazy. It was a time. And then I love what this is. This is why I love Les's writing. And I just love that he draws the parallel. It's all the same dream. He says it was a time in history when men were tempted no longer to regard themselves as the mercy of the fates, but as masters of their environment. 
to think of young rocket scientists at the middle of the 20th century staring up at the moon, equally inspired and awed at the prospect of someday reaching that destination, is not unlike a similar conjuring, a railroad engineer 50 years before, staring out over the Straits of Florida towards Key West, filled with the same sense of wild surmise. And again, I think that's really important because from our vantage point, okay, what's the big deal? Like, it's a bunch of bridges. This is the 1898. We're talking about before the invention of like widespread automobiles obviously existed, but before the widespread adoption of automobiles, before the Wright brothers, it's just insane to think that you're going to build a railroad over the ocean. And what's even more insane is uh, I'm going to, the last part, the last chapter of the book is all about the gigantic storm. It's a fantastic, it's like 20, 20 pages. I highly encourage you reading it. I'm obviously not going to include it in the podcast because it's after Flagler dies. But what's crazy is like this, this most powerful hurricane to ever come destroys most of the railway, right? But there's still parts that survived, like the bridges and the, the arches and everything else. Like it, the, the engineering feat that they figured out 40 years earlier survived the most powerful storm to ever hit the United States. That's incredible to me. So I already mentioned this earlier, like this is really his, his like, why would he do this? This is the reason he thought the, 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 his work would be valuable to others. Really, the thing about this is like you can have a reasonable assumption, but it wind up being wrong. And he's just saying, hey, what I just said earlier, all, Cuba, Caribbean nations, South and Central America, they're going to have all these goods that Americans are going to want. This is the port they're going to come through. Never materializes. He builds the, the port. He builds the railroad. The goods never materialize. So I think that's the important part. Just want to pull out something here. Key West was no undiscovered town. They had more than 20,000 residents. It was the largest city in Florida at the time and had been for more than 50 years. That is insane. In 1900, Key West was the large, had 20,000 people, a place you could only get to by boat. Largest city in Florida at the time and had been for more than 50 years. And so the author was talking about, hey, this is a time when people thought, you know, you could be masters of your own environment. They were way more ambitious, in his opinion, and he talks about this over and over again in the book, they're just more ambitious back then than we are today. And it's also like that kind of person also just thinks like not only is the, the environment malleable, but my entire world is malleable. And so this is what I mean. I asked you to remember it earlier. This is ruthless, ruthless, and a reminder that you need good you need a good defense. That's something I learned from Ed Thorpe. I recently reread his fantastic autobiography. It's Founders number 222. The first time I covered it was all the way back in Founders number 93. I'd always listen to the latest ones. You can listen to both of them if you want, but 222 is where I would start with that. And something he taught me is the fact that he talks about, you know, he's been in the financial markets for half a century at that point. He's writing the book. And he's like, getting rich and staying rich are two separate skills. And so he's like, a good offense is the way you get rich and a good defense is the way you stay rich. And he talks about, you know, there's all kinds of people trying to scam you out of money, all ways you can lose your money, all types of ruthless individuals out there uh, that'll take your money. So you have to have a good defense. This is, again, when I, when we're about to read to you, like you just realize like there's some people just feel they have no limits. And if you happen to get in these people's way, they will run you over. My own personal choice is avoiding these people at all costs. And so his second wife is, his first wife is dead. His second wife is in an asylum. He's, I think he's dating, he's like seven years old at the time. He's dating like some girl that's like 30. To give you an idea, maybe 34. Her family's like, hey, can you please marry our daughter? He can't marry their daughter because divorce is illegal at that point. You can, it only, the only way he could get a divorce is if he could prove adultery. So let's go to the book. 
Flagler was feeling pressure from Mary Lilly's family and the public, so he decided to make an honest woman of her. There was one obstacle, however. Flagler was still a married man. In typical fashion, Flagler went immediately to work on the problem. In 1899, three weeks after proposing to Mary, Flagler announced that he was moving his legal residence from New York to Florida. Why is he doing that? He allowed another two months to pass and then petitioned the Supreme Court of New York that Ida, which is his second wife, could, should be certified insane and thus incompetent, a matter that, would scare, that could scarcely be contested as she had been more for more than two years been locked in a private asylum, carrying on a one-sided conversation with the Tsar of Russia. New York's divorce law was similar to that of Florida in that divorce could only be granted where adultery could be proven. While Ida had stated that she had indeed committed adultery on several occasions, it, she said, she's saying this, that she committed adultery with the Tsar of Russia. The Tsar of Russia is in Russia. He's not in her, her asylum. So this, is, this is stuff is happening like in her mind, okay? It's not, it was not the sort of contention that would hold up in court. So Flagler turned to more practical methods. It took considerable doing, but on April 9th, 1901, two years later, a bill was introduced into the Florida legislature to be entitled an act making incurable insanity a ground for divorce. He changed the law to get divorced. Before the month was out, the bill had sailed through both houses and had been signed into law by the governor. How do you think he convinced them to do that? He convinced them to do it the same way they convinced them to do it today, with money. It was rumored that it cost him $20,000 in bribes to see the bill passed and a number of quote-unquote gifts made to, by Flagler to Florida's public universities were documented. That's ruthless. It is well documented that Flagler planned his actions carefully, though he might appear to have acted in haste at times, as with his controversial divorce and his marriage to, uh, from Ida and his marriage to Mary, Flagler's actions were genuinely undertaken as the culmination of a meticulous process of preparation on his part. And so let's get another insight into his personality and, and what dealing with Henry Flagler would be like. In the 1890s, when Flagler had announced his intention to extend his railway along the central coast to Palm Beach, a group of landowners from the then prosperous town of Juneau, <laughs> I'm going to enunciate that on purpose, remember, then used to be prosperous, what happened to them, I wonder, and that the then prosperous town of Juneau had formed a consortium. Pooling their real estate holdings in order to force up the price, Flagler would have to pay for his right of way. The group was certain that Flagler would have to meet their inflated price in order to avoid sending his, his line through a broad swath of marsh and swamp that would drive the cost of construction through the roof. Presented with their demands, Flagler ordered his railroad built exactly where his foes had assumed it could not be done. At tremendous expense, Flagler's railroad went southward to Palm Beach nonetheless, and the town of Juneau withered and died. Now keep in mind where we are in this story. Flagler is almost 70, and this is what he's got going on in his life. He was still a member of the board of directors of Standard Oil, the largest corporation in the world at the time. And as the chief executive officer of the Florida East Coast Railroad, Railway and its various subsidiaries, he was called upon to oversee a vast network of undertakings that stretched the entire length of Florida, including extensive freight and passenger operations, the management of a wide variety of hotels and resorts, the direction of massive land sales and development operation, and much more. And what I love is there's, I'm going to read a paragraph. I'm going to extend this because this, there's like several paragraphs in the book like this. He is not at all interested in retiring. And is in fact, if you think about what he is, 
he's choosing to run directly towards more difficulties. That is actually one of the, his admirable traits, in my opinion. He could retire long at last, join his new bride at their fabulous new mansion in Palm Beach, where he could rest and enjoy the fruits of his labors. Instead, he continued on. That Flagler chose the latter path says more about the man than any other action undertaken in his lifetime. And so now I have a question for you. What does Jay-Z and Henry Flagler have in common? They know the value of a faint. And so this is something that Jay talked about in his autobiography, back on uh, episode, or, uh, episode 238. And Henry uses over and over again in this book. It says, company records, meaning Henry's company records, indicate that since reaching Miami in 1896, Flagler had been making tentative moves southward, fainting here and there, like a fighter waiting for the right time to wade in for real. That's exactly what Henry said. This is what Jay-Z said. Every hustler knows the value of a feint. It keeps you one step ahead of whoever's listening in. And so to get to his end goal, which is to build the line all the way to the Keys, he's going to have to go through this swampland. Now, remember when I told you Julia Tuttle went and talked to uh, to Flagler's rival, Plant? And Plant had, had been like, no, you can't. Like, he sent an expedition down there. He's like, you can't, it's, it's a swamp. It's Everglades. You can't. The, the whole area is like, there's no way you can build a railroad through there. Well, Flagler wants to investigate for himself. He sends his people down there, and they found, oh, it's hell. But really, the, I'm just going to read uh, two paragraphs to you. A little longer. Two and a half paragraphs, maybe. But really, the way I think about this is what I wrote to myself when I got to this section as I sat here and thought about, because I sat on this, these two pages for a while, that the metaphor here is during the during like your attempt at doing something difficult, you're going to have several points where all of the options in front of you would not be described as good, right? Flagler, at this point, is trying to figure out, okay, I have two ways to build the railroad. Neither is good. But he has to do this, this part, right, where most people fail and, 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 and trip up. He's got to actually solve this problem just to have the opportunity to get to an even more difficult problem, which is that of the building in the railroad actually in the keys. So it's really insane and if you're building especially if you're like you're engineering physical difficult products uh this book is probably interesting because again it's one of the most challenging engineering feats that humans have done especially at the time so it said his surveying party went were to encounter the same daunting conditions that james ingram and his men met while crossing the everglades in the opposite direction so those are plants guys okay a uh, decade before endless stretches of marshland and muck dense stands of 10 foot high sawgrass with edges as sharp as razors clouds of stinging insects so thick you could swing a can about the end of a string and come up with a quart of mosquitoes this is the guy's name is chrome this is the guy that that flagger sent down there this is just fantastic writing so this is why i'm going to read you this whole section a distance that can be traveled by car in an hour or so today took chrome and his men 13 days i found a most godforsaken region he wrote in a, in a report to his supervisor it's going to take us much longer to get a survey than I had expected. Chrome did press on, often forced to drag his shallow bottom boat that they had brought along over terrain that was an indefinable mix of muck and water, sucking at every footstep. Now, that how crazy is this? So it's hard to walk on, but it's not liquid enough to cross by boat. I mean, it's a swamp, right? The men were tortured by heat, humidity, insects, and often lost their way in the featureless landscape. If not for the aid of the occasional backcountry hunter or a member of the, of the native tribe, Chrome's only memorial might have been a long-forgotten pile of bones. And so again, he's got to solve 
a series of extremely difficult problems just to for the opportunity to then tackle it's like the final boss like the most difficult problem it's, it's just remarkable but this is one of his most admirable qualities in my opinion based on the reading of this book to a pragmatist like flagler the route seemed possible when questioned so now they're talking about building across open water okay when questioned how he would cross those mammoth stretches of open water flagler replied it is perfectly simple all you have to do is build one concrete arch and then another and then another and pretty soon you'll find yourself in key west and so he's like all right who's going to build this thing for me he searches the entire world for a quote-unquote concrete uh, expert he finds this guy in uh, named meredith meredith is actually going to die on the job a few years from now he winds up being diabetic um but meredith i want to read meredith's uh interpretation of flagler which i thought was really was really fascinating so it says meredith remember being summoned directly from mexico where he was working to saint augustine for his interview um and so now he's talking about flagler permanence appeals to him more strongly than any other man i ever met he often told me to build for all time the interview was brief and to the point once Meredith has assured Flagler that nothing about his plans seemed impossible, the matter, matter was settled. When can you start? Flagler asked Meredith, fully expecting that he might ask for a month or so to settle his affairs. What Flagler, or excuse me, what Meredith's about to do here is exactly what Andrew Carnegie said to do. Andrew Carnegie did this when he was uh, trying to find an opportunity. Young person, didn't have a bunch of money. He gets hired a job. He's like, I'm going right now. Uh, if there's an opportunity, go now. And so Meredith says, I'm ready to go to work this afternoon. And then he asks, he's like, if it's okay, I'd like a few days, though. Let me go home to Kansas City, pack some things, see my family, because I'm going to be on this job for several years. All right, my boy, go see your family, Flagler said. So the people that knew Flagler well, and he was very difficult to get to know, uh, they actually described him as a supremely stoic man. And so part of the promotion for this project he, there's a there's a, uh, a reporter that goes down and you know he, he's gonna he, his intention was to write like a hit piece on a robber baron and he gets there and he, he discovers something different so it says uh, he embarked upon his assignment ready to deliver a portrait of a robber baron facing his just desserts uh, he was to spend several weeks inspecting Flagler's vast holdings and several more days in conversation with the man however he came away with a vastly revised assessment of Flagler and this is what he said about him you realize that you are before a man who has suffered and has never wept, who has undergone intense pain and has never sobbed, who has never bent under stress. Keep in mind, Flagler is 74 at this point. In a letter written to an associate at the time, Flagler provides a glimpse of his own self-image. Remember, he's 74, okay? I was born with an oak constitution. The only excess I believe I have indulged in has been that of hard work. He's 74. This actually, this part was actually kind of inspiring to me because, like, the idea, you know, like, if, like, do, you, you never know, like, what, what am I going to feel like when I'm 74? Am I going to have the energy? Like, are you going to want to actually, like, continue doing, making, working, and contributing to, to your fellow humans, to society? And if we're like Flagler, if we're lucky enough to be like Flagler, it's like, yeah. So he says, I believe the only excess I believe I've indulged in has been that of hard work. I have, however, one ailment, which is uncurable, old age, and that I am submitting to as gracefully as possible. I am quite sure, however, that I possess as much vitality and can do as much work as the average man of 45. Hard work, energy, and accomplishment. For Flagler, it seemed to be all he knew and all he needed to know. 
And so the book describes, I mean, just unbelievable amount of obstacles, as you can imagine, trying to do this. But one of them I just want to pull out is one of the hardest challenges was actually finding enough workers. This is undeveloped, largely undeveloped swampland. The trip made a profound impact upon Flagler, who understood that a steady supply of labor was crucial to the success of his undertaking. Labor shortages, which had always plagued his road-building efforts in a sparsely populated Florida, would be greatly exacerbated here. One of our most trying problems has been to take a big body of low-grade men, take care of them, and build them into a capacity for performing high-class work. And so people would come down on the rail line looking to to make money. Most of them are from northern states, and they get into the hot, the heat, the humidity, and the insects, and they would last a day, maybe two days, and they would just desert. And I think at that point, this point in the story where he's realizing, oh, I got a giant problem, he had hired 400 workers, and they had dwindled down to 150. So at this point, that guy Meredith, the concrete expert that said, hey, I can go to work right now, he's in charge of the project. He's the one that's reporting directly to Flagler. So this gives you an insight. The reason I want to pull out this one paragraph gives you an insight into how Flagler managed. For while the undertaking was guided by Flagler's vision, the commander-in-chief was wise enough to give his field general free reign when it came to the devising of the day-to-day tactics. Here is the goal, the wise commander says. How you achieve it is precisely up to you. And again, I don't think I can ever reiterate enough just how difficult this task was. So not only do you have, like, it's undeveloped, you have a hard time getting supplies, you have a hard time getting workers, the the the, uh, the conditions are inhospitable, some of this is taking over giant swaths of open, uh, open sea. But not only that, during the construction, I think it takes 10 or 12 years, uh, just the, the keys part. Uh, he's, he's in Florida for like 26, I think, something like that. But they get hit by three different hurricanes. And I'm not talking about the, the, the massive hurricane that happens in 1935 that destroys the railway. I'm talking during the, the actual construction of what they're doing. So there's many times where it's just like, we made progress and a hurricane comes through and destroys everything else. we got to do it over again. And it happens multiple times. And there's a lot of, of just descriptions of, obviously, hurricanes in this book. That's a, the, the, these storms are a major part. They're like, it's a supporting character in the book. And I just want to give you a great description of some of the dangers of hurricanes. He's got a, a ton of great writing. But this, is, this gives you an idea. So it says, It's impossible to stand upright in such winds. And even if it were, remaining outside for long would be suicidal. Roger Clemens might manage to throw a fastball in the high 90 miles per hour. And some major leaguers have suffered fractured skulls when they've been too slow to duck such a pitch. These winds were running somewhere between 150 miles an hour. A baseball weighs 5 ounces. Actually, I was mistaken. This isn't a description of one of the hurricanes they had to deal with. They're actually talking about... Uh, the difference between the, the, the massive storm that hits in 1935 and then Hurricane Andrew, which hit in 1992. Hurricane Andrew uh, was the most property damage. I think this is before Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina. But the hur- hurricane in 1935 was the, the one with the strongest wind. So hurricane. So this is about what it would be like if you were outside during Hurricane Andrew. So it says, uh, Roger Clemens might manage to throw a fastball in the high 90 miles per hour, and some major leaguers have suffered fractured skulls when they've been too slow to duck such a pitch. Hurricane Andrew's winds were running somewhere between 150 and 175 miles an hour. A baseball weighs 5 ounces. Now try to imagine taking a hurricane-tossed 5-pound clay roof tile to the face. For those who have never lain prone beneath the passage of such a monster, there is no way of knowing beforehand. And so it was for the men encamped on the Northern Keys on October 17, 1906 few pages later again this is just one of three hurricanes that hit the keys during the, c- the construction of flagler's railway uh, there's a ton of paragraphs like this in the book 
and it says, Sanders watched another plank, wooden plank, come screaming through the air towards towards the man who's next to him, who looked up in time to take its full blow, uh, who, ta- who to take its blow full force. The man's chest split open as though it had been cut with a giant pair of shears. And so there's all kinds of crazy stories. There's interviews that that Les does in the book about some people that, that survived the 1935 hurricane. There's also some stories about the ones that are that take place during construction. So while that guy that's happening in 1906 just got cut open, um, so while that's going on, I'm going to read you. There's actually people risking their life. They're experiencing the hurricane too. They're in a boat. And it's just a reminder there's just good people in the world. The people I'm about to describe to you that, on, that are on this boat are actually risking their lives to save others, and they wind up doing that. It says, They relayed the news to, to Jenny, which is the ship, to Jenny's captain, who ordered the ship into a full-fledged search. By 1.30 in the morning, the Jenny had pulled 49 men from the water and delivered them safely to Key West. And so there's all kinds of stories about families being separated, mothers and daughters being separated, and fathers and son. This is one of the happy endings. One of the guys get pulled out of the water. It says the son was fortunate enough to grab hold of a plank and managed to keep himself afloat until he was rescued the following day. Where, When he was finally delivered to safety, the son told a railroad official the heart-wrenching story of the loss of his father. So he thought his father drowned. He thought he was swept away by the storm. Tell me your name again, son, said the listener. The son did so. The official then smiled and clapped the young man on the shoulder. You can relax. Your father's safe. He told the same story when he was brought in a couple hours ago. Imagine the relief by both father and son. The father's telling the story thinking his son is dead that he watched his son die in a hurricane. The son had the exact same experience. I cannot believe my father's dead. And then there's like, no, you were actually reunited the next day. And so after every hurricane, they're forced to rebuild. They're forced to proceed work again. Fly was still having a, a, a giant problem with personnel. And he realizes, okay, the, the, we're taking northern people from the north, uh, northeast in America. They're not acclimated to this condition. And so he winds up finding people uh, from the Cayman Islands and from some like tropical Central American and Caribbean islands. And once he starts in- importing them, he's like, oh, they're used to these conditions. They can, they're, humidity and heat is just natural. They've been born and raised in this environment. So that was like a major breakthrough that he discovered. Just the importance of finding people that are, have already been accustomed and adapted to the, to the, uh, the work level that you, that, you, that you require, right? And so it says the Spanish workers had always been stayers in Flagler's eyes, meaning that they, they don't desert, they don't leave. And as word got back to their country, uh, countrymen about improved living and working conditions on the project, more and more of them came to sign on. Uh, native Cayman Islanders, likewise accustomed to the climate and insects, also had come to con- constitute a significant part of the workforce. And this is their typical day. A writer visiting the work camps for the Railroad Gazette noted that while mosquitoes were large and fierce, all the bunkhouses and porches were screened. The men get up at 5 in the morning, take a bath, have breakfast at 5.30, and then work from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m., have lunch, then go back to work at 12 and get off at 5 p.m. with supper from 5.30 to 6. Sundays are rest days. Many workers reported that conditions at the camp were superior to those at their own homes. So essentially working from 6 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon. One of Flagler's executives is on a boat. Uh, he goes from his, like, under underneath the boat to try to go talk to the, the, the captain of the boat about, hey, we should schedule a stop. I got to check on something. 
and he goes out and as the same time he goes to the to he's trying to walk on the side of the boat to where the captain is uh the boat gets like hit by a wave and he falls over and the, the engine's so loud that the boat like he's screaming for help but they can't hear him and so this story is about how not panicking can save your life so it says as he worked and willed himself to stay afloat ko kept his mind on a story that had always stayed with him in large part because of his very fear of what it had just befallen him a friend had once to- told Ko about being on board a small ferry boat that was crossing Lake Michigan. The ferry had sunk, and the friend had found himself flailing about in frigid waters along with his wife and young daughter, neither of whom could swim. Terrifying, right? Ko's friend had reasoned, but Ko's friend could swim. His wife and his daughter could not, but the water's really cold. Ko's friend had reasoned firmly, but reassuringly with his wife and daughter telling them not to panic and to simply keep their hands on his shoulders. He insisted that he could keep all three of them afloat, and if they would simply trust him and stay calm, they would be saved. Ko's friend had been successful, and the message behind the story burned fiercely in Ko's brain as he floated there in the lonely waters. And so he's like, I'm not going to panic, and he tries to be positive. He had certain things going for him, he told himself. There's plenty of daylight left, and compared to the choppy and frigid Lake Michigan, he might as well have been bobbing in a calm, if enormous, tub of bathwater. And so he's treading water. He's like, I got plenty of daylight. I'm going to stay calm. I'm not going to panic. If I panic, I'm going to die. Eventually, uh, the people go, the people driving the boat go back and try to figure out, hey, where did Ko go? They, see, they realize he's not in his room. That's weird. He's on the boat. Then they see where he fell off. It kind of like broke a part of the boat. So they immediately turn around. And it says, and then he saw the approaching craft, his engineer waving and shouting, relief washed over him. In moments, he was being pulled to safety. And so that reminded me, I had this crazy story a few years ago on a podcast. There's a former Miami Dolphins football player named Rob Conrad. And he was on his boat nine miles off, off the coast of Florida by himself. And his boat had autopilot, like, I guess, cruise control. And so he set it up. It, it kept going. And so he goes to the back of the boat to check something and it like hit a wave or something and it knocked him out of the boat. And normally if you fell out of the boat, like it, the engine would stop and he just realized, oh my God, the thing's going to keep going. And so on this podcast, he is telling the story where he takes 16 hours to swim nine miles to safety. The whole time he's just thinking of his, I think he has young daughters and his wife and he's just like, I can't give up. You know, you're, you're beyond fatigued. So, like, he's severely sunburned. By the time he gets to shore, like, all the skin on his neck and his shoulders and everything else are, are completely gone from the grinding of the, 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 the salt water. It was just an unbelievable story about human will. It's just like, I cannot die. My family needs me. And it just pushed him. I just could not imagine swimming for 16 hours straight. Another hurricane hits the island, interrupts the, the construction, kills a bunch of people. Uh, there's just one story. This is just incredible that this guy survives. One foreman was caught in the storm and tried to save himself from being swept out to sea by tying himself to the trunk of a tree with his own belt. He was still being buffeted by the winds when the man began to sense that he might live. Then he began to feel a terrible burning sensation at his hands. The searing pain had moved from his face had moved to his face and lips which were pressed tight against the trunk of the tree. His eyes had begun to burn and in moments were nearly swollen shut. So this is about the intense human desire to survive, to, 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 to live, right? Not only is it about to be blown out uh, by the wind, there's storm surge. He's tying himself to trees like, okay, okay, maybe I won't get blown off this tiny little island and I'll actually survive. And he winds up tying himself to a poisonous tree, 
right? And he still, he survives. Like, this is crazy. So now his, his face is on fire, his hands are on fire, his eyes are shut, and he's in 100, 100 plus mile an hour winds. He realized the terrible irony of what he had done. He had lashed himself to a manichial tree, most likely pronouncing it correctly, manichial tree, one of the most poisonous plants that grows in the tropic. The indigenous key, Keys Native Americans had used the manichial to poison the wells of invading Spanish conquistadors hundreds of years earlier, one of whom wrote home that he who sleeps underneath a manichial tree sleeps forever. So it says Flagler's next birthday would be his 82nd, and those closest to him had come to feel that the only thing that kept the old man alive was his dream of seeing the project completed. Yes, he's getting old. He's starting to get hunched over. He's getting a little weaker, but he's still got that fire in the belly. And we see that because this is when he sends one of his executives down. They're like, okay, we're almost, we know we can do this. Where is the train going to terminate at? We got to build a terminal. And so it says, the, uh, by then, the Keys was the most populous city in Florida, with its point, port ranked as the 13th busiest in the nation. And so it says, uh, it's one by four miles of territory had been built and overbuilt already. By the time Joseph Parrott arrived, that's the guy that Flagler sent, there was simply no more land to be had. Certainly not enough for Flagler's ambitious plans. There's no more dry land in Key West, Parrott reported to his boss. Then make some, Flagler replied. And Parrott did. He constructed a bulkhead above the northwest corner of the island and dredged thousands of cubic yards of marl. I had to look that up. That is unconsolidated sedimentary rock or soil consisting of clay and lime. So he takes a bunch of this from the the bottom of the ocean and starts building land, right? Uh, So it says thousands of cubic yards of marl from the adjoining flats to fill in a breakwater and foundation for for a rail yard, terminal building, and docks. The United States Navy tried to block the project, complaining that they were removing fill from submerged lands under their control and that they might need that fill for defense purposes someday. Parrott's response was classic Flagler. If the time ever came when the Navy needed its mud, Parrott said they had his word that it would be returned from whence it came. And this idea that I'm going to build a railway from the top of Florida all the way to the end takes over 20 years but damn it, he did it. On the afternoon of January 21st, 1912, almost seven years after work on the Key West extension of the line had begun, the project's equivalent of driving of the Golden Spike took place. For the first time, traffic was open across the seven-mile bridge, at, a, at the time the world's longest continuous bridge. The process of rail building that had begun in 19, excuse me, in 1892 was complete. There were now 366 miles of track linking Jacksonville with Miami and 156 more connecting Miami with Key West. The same morning, Henry Flagler, now 82, left his home in Palm Beach. He was frail and his sight was failing, but nothing was about to stop him. Not after spending $12 million on hotels, $18 million on a land-based railroad, and another $20 million more of his, on his railroad across the sea. On this day, he would board his private railroad car at the West Palm Beach station for a 220-mile trip that would culminate in Key West and punctuate the dream of a lifetime. At 10.34 a.m., Henry Flagler, his back bent with age and his dim eyes brimming with tears, stepped out onto the observation platform to an ovation the likes of which he had never encountered. He had ridden his own iron to Key West at last. 
a military band played, and a children's chorus of 1,000 voices sang patriotic songs in Flagler's honor. A choked-up Flagler turned to Parrot and whispered, I can hear the children, but I cannot see them. Parrot, nearly overcome himself, simply gripped his old friend's arm and squeezed. When finally called upon to speak, Flagler managed to rally. We have been trying to anchor Key West to the mainland, he said, and anchor it we have done. The project that so many had turned away from and others had derided became a reality. Few people in history have accomplished so great a task or lived to experience such a moment as Flagler did. On his way off the platform, Flagler placed a hand on Parrot's shoulder and whispered, Now I can die happy. My dream is fulfilled. And that is where I'll leave it for the full story. Highly recommend reading the book. It's a, it's just fantastically written. Wonderful story. Ton of interesting information in here. If you buy the book using the link that's in the show notes in your podcast player, you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. Another way to support the podcast is to give a gift subscription to a friend, coworker, or family member. That link is always uh, is down below in the show notes in your podcast player. It's also available at founderspodcast.com. That is 247 books down, 1,000 to go, and I'll talk to you again soon.